we're continuing to examine uh, Moses' teaching to the younger generation of Israel. Uh, the older generation uh, heard these things firsthand. Most of them have already perished. There is a uh, younger group that was even alive, the children of those first uh, departed out of Egypt, and they've become adults now. And you know how it is uh, when you were younger, you didn't understand things the same way. And certainly didn't grasp all of the detail and attention. And now, as that younger generation is adult, and they have taken the reins of leadership and they're about to enter the land, uh, then Moses is going over all of the law, the descriptions of the law, and the behavior of the people before they go into the land, because they're going to need to live by all of these things. So in Deuteronomy chapter 12, Looking at verse 1, it says, These are the statutes and the judgments which you shall be careful to observe in the land which the Lord your God, or the Lord God of your fathers, is giving you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. Notice that it tells them they're going to have to be careful to observe these things. There's no lackadaisical approach uh, to this faith, to this worship, to these understandings. If you take a lax approach to the word of God, then you'll very easily depart from it and from its guidance. If you don't have a seriousness about understanding and learning these things and then living by them, you'll very easily depart from them. Verse 2 you shall utterly destroy all the places where the nations which you shall dispossess served their gods. On the high mountains and on the hills, under every green tree, you shall destroy their altars, break their sacred pillars, and burn their wood wooden images with fire. You shall cut down the carved images of their gods and destroy their names from that place you shall not worship the Lord your God with such things uh, a big portion of the reason that God wants all of these things destroyed is that they're sexual in nature mostly uh, it's it's going to have a sinful stimulation to the people constantly if these things are in their environment. God wants them done away with. Uh, you can see the same sort of tendency within our own behavior in our culture. Uh, sexuality is everywhere. Um, I don't know if you're you know, aware entirely of you know, how this came about uh, for a lot of people today, they're acting like, oh, it's just always been that way. And it absolutely is not. Uh, our, our culture today, how, how about this statistic, parents? And I, I you know, being careful to observe these things, 50% uh, of all five-year-olds five -year have been exposed 
to pornography on cell phones. 50% of five-year-olds have accessed it themselves. That's the culture we live in now. Alfred Kinsey, who was really the origin of all this, you know, celebrated in the 60s as the father of the sexual revolution of our nation. Uh, No one stopped to ask him about his research. He presented what he considered to be sexual norms in writing, particularly to the courts, as America began the process of legalizing pornography. You know, are we going to allow, you know, Hugh Hefner to produce Playboy magazine later? Are we going to allow the production uh, by Larry Flint of Hustler magazine? Are we going to let these things be in our culture? And they used the case studies that were presented by Kinsey. It was decades later when they did the research into his research and discovered that what he presented as the the sexual norms of appetite for the adult American male, he had learned those things from questioning criminals in Europe who were incarcerated for their sexual behavior. Men who had raped and murdered and been imprisoned Not only women, but they had raped and murdered men, women, and children. Kinsey had interviewed them. That's where he gained. I'm not making this up. I'm not exaggerating this. This is where he gained his understanding of what the normal sexual desires of human beings were and presented them to the public and to the courts as though this is what we should be aiming for. Based upon that man's writings, I'm not even going to describe them to you. Today, it's widely accepted that he himself was a child molester. And he's documenting all of this as this is normal sexual behavior. This is normal sexual desire. And and now, right, we're seeing it all through our culture. And everybody's saying, now, how did we go from where we were to where we are? Listen, that's not the scariest question. The scarier question is, where are we going to be when we go from where we presently are to what that produces? We've got a generation right now that views pornography as completely natural and completely normal. That it's it's something that should be used. That's where this culture was at. And the Lord said, when you go into the land, I want you to destroy all of those things that those people venerated. I need you to get rid of them. If we don't get rid of them as a culture, the danger that is ahead of us, the desire that it's producing, you know, you go... In the 60s, by the 70s, look at what it was producing in the serial killers that were emerging in America in the 70s. Look at what transpired in the 80s. Think about what the 80s has produced in this generation, right? We we didn't have handheld devices that were streaming apparatus for these things continuously in 
the 80s that produced the young people of the 90s that 90s produced and now what we have right now, what is it going to produce? We're living in Sodom and Gomorrah presently. Presently. These perverts are, are in, you know, people get offended. I use that term and, and they, they instantly, I'm the one that's the criminal and I'm the one that's intolerant. These perverts are in our streets saying, saying their words were coming for your children. This is where we are. We're, we are never going to be able to rise up from inside this generation and purge this stuff out. That's going to take the miraculous hand of God to deliver us from not only what's here, but what it's going to produce. You must resist it inside your own life. You absolutely have to resist it in your family, in your children. You must be aware of what's going on. You cannot just let the young people around you have free access, unfettered controls to these things that produces the most heinous of circumstances. God is saying you've got to destroy this. It's got to be gone. You've got to remove it out of every place that you find it. Verse five, but you shall seek the place where the Lord your God chooses out of all your tribes to put his name for his dwelling place. Where are you going to worship? And there you shall go. There you shall Take your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, your heave offerings, that would have been the grain, and of your hand, you vow your vowed offerings, your freewill offerings, the firstborn of the herds and the flocks. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God and shall rejoice in all to which you have put your hand, you and your household, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. Listen, these people do not view this great wealth and prosperity that they have, that they're giving to the Lord as burdensome at all. They're viewing it as a joyous celebration of their prosperity because they've come from absolute slavery and nothing to the place where they have such abundance that they can give to the Lord. What happens over time is they get so wealthy that all of the people, each generation has only experienced the prosperity. So then they become begrudging towards God as though this belongs to us. And now you're saying, I've got to give it to you. What the Lord is saying is you had nothing, you were slaves, I delivered you from that, and I've given you great abundance, and when you have that great abundance, you need to come to me with joy and give back to me so that my ministry can be performed in your midst. It's the worship of God that makes us prosperous. Don't don't. Think of that as some health, wealth, and prosperity message, right? Uh, just think about your behavior. Without the Lord, you're going to become bankrupt, even if you're the wealthiest person in the world. Uh, look at the examples we have 
in our culture of the wealthiest people in the world. And you periodically hear their confessions in the media of how unhappy they are in their lives. Some of them demonstrate it with ultimate expressions of suicide. They have everything in the world and they have nothing in the world. They're, they're distraught at every level, at every experience. They're, they're trying anything and everything in order to quench the desire in their heart for a relationship with God. God has given us that relationship. And in the process, God is saying, again, you must be careful to find my place of worship and then invest yourself in that. It's, it's not a plea for money. It's a plea for worship that we personally would be completely and wholly invested in our worship of the Lord. Look at verse 8. <clears throat> you shall not at all do as uh, we are doing here today. Every man doing whatever is right in his own eyes. That is such a summary of our culture. Everyone doing what is right in their own eyes. Even within the church, people, you know, argue about, well, what am I required to do? You know, as a Christian, is it okay if I still, and then they fill in the blank with whatever, you know, vice they have found themselves attached to. Christ has delivered us from the things of the world in order to fulfill each one of us. And what he's encouraging us here is to carefully search out the scripture and find what God desires of us. I had a discussion uh, some years ago now with a person who'd gone through uh, biblical training and he'd come out convinced that we're not supposed to have uh, corporate church gatherings. He's insisting that every one of us should worship as we see fit in our own homes. And really, if there's any level of commitment God is calling us to, then it's that perhaps home churches are what we should be doing. The scripture very clearly states, right, we've just been through this thing with COVID-19 where they told us that we couldn't come to church. Hebrews 10.25 clearly states that we should not forsake the gathering together of the saints as some have taught. Uh, you know, you look at the first church that is developed and all of the believers, thousands of them at a time, <clears throat> went to the temple and were taught daily. So church was happening every day, not just Sunday, not just Sunday night, not just Sunday morning, Sunday night, and a midweek service on Wednesday, every day. They were going to the temple and they were being taught the apostles' doctrine. Why? They had a desire for it. You see, again, the prosperity, even the spiritual prosperity, has led the church to a place where it's so full it doesn't even care to be filled anymore. It goes both directions, right? Um, to illustrate it, um, my mother uh, sold homemade bread from our home growing up. We, we made 
loaves of homemade bread, sold them out of our house every day. Neighbors would come by. Every loaf she made, we sold. Well, I grew up in a house where the, fr the smell of fresh-baked whole wheat bread was there constantly, all the time. You know, kind of got sick of it, for real. I mean, years later, right, you're just sort of longing for some wonder bread. You know what I'm saying? It's just when you've got to, like, cut that thing yourself every time. You know, fresh out of the oven with butter, you know, okay, that's got a certain appeal. But, you know, it does. It just sort of becomes commonplace with it. I, I remember I had one particular friend at school who grew up in, you know, health food granola house. You know, you cut that bread and, like, fresh ground peanut butter and, like, honey in the comb. That was, like, my sandwich, you know, at school. Health food kid. I had a friend, Sean, who came from the Wonder Bread family, and he would show up with Wonder Bread and American cheese and bologna, and we would swap. You know, he thought he was getting a deal. I thought I was getting a deal. The church today is so malnourished that it doesn't even have an appetite for that which is healthy. You, know, you sit down to a 45-minute Bible study, and they're not intrigued by that. Don't, don't want to go verse by verse through. It, it should be a constant fireworks display of entertainment. And if, if it's not, then they don't want it. You know, I've, I've sat in those Bible studies where I walk out the door and I think, like, what did I learn? And I didn't learn much of anything. At all. And, and this is a big contributing factor to people. You know, I, uh, I met a young man who was a millionaire. He's in a band, huge record label. He was playing in Boston. We'd gone down to see them, and they, I had a group of teenagers with us. He invites us in to their tour bus, and all the kids are just, you know, wide-eyed and in wonderment at all of the money and the wealth and everything that's going on. And I tell this young man in the band that I'm, you know, at the time, I'm a youth pastor in a Calvary Chapel. And I, he says, oh, I go to Calvary Chapel. And I say, really? Where do you go to Calvary Chapel? And I was not supposed to put him on the spot. Because he couldn't remember where he goes to church. And end result is he couldn't remember his pastor's name. And really embarrassing when we got down to the point where not only could he not remember where his Bible was, he was pretty sure he didn't have his Bible with him. So here's a young man, whether it's his pastor's doing or whatever, who doesn't have an appetite for God's word, but grew up in a church where, wow, it was spectacular every Sunday. And he's moved from there into that same spectacular life. And he's a million miles from Christ. Uh, you, you want to, the Lord is saying, when you get there, you need to first establish where you're going to worship. And then you need to invest in that. Whenever somebody comes to me and says, good news, I got a new job. We're moving. The first thing I say is, what church are you going to be going to when you get there? 
And I'm always very concerned when they go, I don't know. I say, do you even know if there's a church in that town? A church that you will enjoy? Have you checked that? That should be your priority. You know, good friends here, very solid people. Massive job offered to them. They did not check out the church. They left here and went to that location on the West Coast thinking we're just going to land. And they went to the biggest, most popular church in the community. They were there for three months. And they were beside themselves. Not, not even so much what they were beside themselves about was what was happening in their family. Daughter losing her mind, kids coming unglued, marriage in trouble. From solid and stable to in three months' time, things are a shambles. And I put it to the husband, your priority is your church, man. Forget the job. You need to find a solid church. In the end, they were driving over an hour to a church, but it was solid and they were getting fed and everything got back on track. Everything got back on track. Because why? They came into a place where the pagans were all around them. They had to ignore all of that pagan worship and they had to focus on the worship of God. They needed to get settled into that. Settled into that. So many young people. Get Ken Ham's book already gone. Please get that if you have not gotten that. And read, right? We, we talk about, oh, these young people, they go from churches and they end up in college and college pollutes their mind and they walk away from the faith. Well, listen, Ken Ham and others have done the research together and published that book. And what they've discovered is it isn't the college that corrupted the young people's minds. It was the church where they grew up that corrupted their minds. They weren't fed. They didn't know why they believed. They didn't understand the word of God. They came up in a place where they weren't being grounded. They were being fed the wonder bread in church. And they end up in college. And they at first think, I'm going to challenge this stuff. But they got no ground to stand on. They got no strength spiritually. And they crumble and they fail. God is not here saying... You get into that place, you establish the temple, and then you give me my money. That's not what he's saying at all. He's saying you want the strength and prosperity that you expect to have when you get in this country. You're going to have to establish my order of worship, and then you're going to have to invest heavily in it in order to keep the people aligned with me. That's, that's how you're going to grow, and that's how you're going to be strong. If you don't do these things, then it's all going to fall apart right in your hands. God is trying to bless them, right? All the grandkids are back around and you're trying to teach them different things. You know, all they hear is don't do that. You know, big discussion over why we don't ride our bicycles without our shoes on, right? And, you know, it just sounds like a big restriction. And I'm saying, no, we're trying to avoid a big hospital visit while you're here. You know, chains and spokes and gears are really unfriendly to little tiny toes. We want to keep everybody healthy. That's what God is doing with us. He's just trying to prevent the bad and encourage the good so that everyone prospers 
in the process. You shall not all do as we are doing here today, every man doing what is right in his own eyes. For as yet you have not come to the rest of the inheritance which the Lord your God is giving you. But when you cross over the Jordan and dwell in the land, which the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and he gives you rest from all your enemies around about, so that you dwell in safety. Now, a couple of points. We've recently studied through Hebrews, and there is a rest that they don't ever acquire, right? Because it's the religious works. They keep working and working and working religiously. And Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, is telling especially the Jewish believers that Jesus Christ has provided you rest from those works. So he is, Jesus is the Sabbath. So that's a different discussion. The point he's bringing here is the rest from their enemies. They're going to conquer the giants. They're going to conquer Jericho. They're going to receive these locations as their own. Unfortunately, the thing I have to point out is they never conquer all of those enemies. They leave some of them in place. And then those enemies are constantly harassing them for the rest of their days. So there's an example to us to not do as the nation of Israel has done. Verse 11, then there will be a place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide, remain, rest. There you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, the heave offerings of your hand, and all your choice offerings which you vow to the Lord. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God and you and your sons and your daughters, your male and female servants, and the Levite who is within your gates, the priests, those that serve in all of these places of worship. Since he has no portion nor inheritance with you, the Levites didn't get any land given to them to own for themselves. They had a, a corporate area that they farmed together in order to receive sustenance for themselves. So again, the Levites weren't just given a free ride. They had a certain degree of provision of uh, places to live that were given to them, but it was so that they would be amongst every one of the tribes ministering to them. God dispersed them through all of the tribes. Take heed to yourself that you do not offer your burnt offerings in every place that you see, but in the place which the Lord chooses in one of your tribes. Notice that, one of your tribes. There you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do all that I command you. Began with Shiloh, when they established that as the center of worship. <clears throat> they had the tabernacle, the tent, that they moved with them everywhere that they went. Once they entered the land, it traveled with them, and then they, they established it in Shiloh. Uh, later, it moved to Gilgal, and then eventually, when David became king, he established Jerusalem, and then they built the temple, or his son did. Solomon built the temple, and that's where all of the people were required to go uh, for the mandatory feasts. Point being, one location. 
where they as a nation were required to bring these mandated sacrifices and offerings to the Lord in order to worship. Later, when the people are divided over jealousy and hatred and bitterness, they establish two more places of idolatrous worship in the north as the ten northern tribes separate from the two southern tribes and then the worship becomes extremely convoluted. They no longer follow these mandates of the Lord anywhere near the way that they should. But staying to the point here in chapter 12, uh, with beginning at verse 15, God is saying there's going to be one location, and that's where I want you to come and worship me. However, you may slaughter and eat meat within your gates. Whatever your heart desires, according to the blessing of the Lord your God, which he has given you. So he, he talks about the types of meat that they can eat in detail in the book of Leviticus. And we're going to cover some of that when he mentions the unclean here in just a moment. He's talking about the people who can eat of these meats that are being described. The confusion is... He's made the mandate in the past that when the butchering and the slaughtering takes place, it must happen at the tabernacle when they were traveling. Now they're going to move into the land and they're going to have the tabernacle in one location within the country. And he's saying the offerings still need to come to the Lord, but you can butcher your own meat at your own home and eat as much as you want. So does that make sense for everybody? He's he's removing the mandate that says that they have to butcher their meat at the tabernacle so that they can eat at home. So it's okay to have a family barbecue and do all your food preparation there is what he's saying, essentially. You may eat, only you shall not eat of the blood, rather. So uh, however you may slaughter... Uh, uh, I lost my place. According to the blessing of the Lord your God, verse 15, that he has given you, the unclean and the clean may eat of it, of the gazelle and the deer alike, the clean animals. Only you shall not eat the blood. You shall pour it on the earth like water. Uh, just for clarification's sake, if you really like rare steak, uh, number one, uh, we're not under the Levitical law, right? Peter heard Acts chapter 10. Uh, all of the creeping things uh, were lowered down uh, in uh, the sail. Uh, you know, we, we hear that it was a sheet. It was a sail lowered. Peter had the vision. The Lord said, arise, kill and eat. So God lifted the prohibition on the unclean animals. I don't know why you'd ever want to eat a bat or a shrew or a mole or you know, uh, you know, a lot of those things, but you know, lobster is a good idea. You know, there, there are a bunch of things that we do, uh, like to eat along the way. Point being the old Testament mandate has been lifted for new Testament believers here. He puts the restriction on the blood that doesn't cover like rare meat. As we're talking about, it's, it's literally a pagan practice to slaughter the animal, drain the blood, consume and drink the blood. It was part of their worship. And God is saying that's not part of your life, and it's incredibly unhealthy for you to do, especially at a time 
where the animals are not cared for like they are today. I mean, the diseases were not prevented anywhere near like they are today. So verse 16, only you shall not eat the blood. You shall pour it on the earth like water. You may not eat within the gates the tithe of your grain or the new wine or your oil, the firstborn of the herd or the flock or any of the offerings which you vow of your free will offerings of your heave offerings to um, offerings of your hand. But you may you must eat them before the Lord your God in the place which the Lord your God chooses you and your sons and your daughters, your male servants and your female servants and the Levite who is within your gates. Rejoice before the Lord your God and in all to which you put your hand. Take heed to yourself that you do not forsake the Levite as long as you live in your land. You must take care of the priests who are going to lead you in worship. It is very much God's heart that this goes on so that the people are continuously being taught and continuously being led in the worship of the Lord. Now, uh, just to jump to an explanation, an example of where this goes wrong, right? They fall into idolatrous practices. The Lord uh, sends prophet after prophet to them, warning them that if they continue in these pagan things, that he'll eventually put them out of the land. Eventually, they are entirely put out of the land of Israel, and they're in captivity in Babylon for 70 years. <clears throat> Nehemiah hears from the Lord. They return to the land. Ezra uh, begins the process of rebuilding the temple. The walls are partially constructed. All of the people come together and they're having that celebration of they've been released from captivity and the land and Jerusalem are being restored and they begin to read the law. And in the midst of it, they're coming across these passages and they're realizing this is why we were slaves. We didn't read the word of God. We didn't hear these mandates and these laws. And we forsook the worship of the Lord and the provision for the Levites. And we fell into sin. And that is why God sent us away into captivity to learn as a nation to not be idolaters. Listen, there is a famine in our land today of God's word. The church is not absorbing and taking in the word of God the way that it should. The church is starving. And a big part of that is the church is not investing in the word of God. The church attendees are not. Again, another example, totally different, totally separate Talking to a brother a number of years ago, he's saying that he and his family had been traveling, but they always make it a point to go to church on Sundays when they're on vacation and when they're traveling. And I'm thinking, well, good for you. You know, that's like, like that's a good point. It's a good thing to do. And so I said, where did you go to church? And he said, well, it was interesting because we got up and we, we went in town to look for a church and we're driving on the road and we saw this massive church and the parking lot is full and there's just cars everywhere. And we just knew automatically now that's the church we want to go to. And I'm still with him. I'm excited with him and excited for him. And he's like, hey, you know, and so we went in and, I, and I'm like, well, how was church? 
And he's just amazing. And the band and the worship team is astonishing. And they had they had a light show and they had fog and it was like a rock concert. Really entertaining. I said, well, that sounds pretty spectacular. So uh, how was the message that you were taught? Don't really remember. Well, what did the pastor teach on? Don't really remember. What did you get out of the message? Don't really remember. I know this is almost the same thing as what I said earlier, but in his mind, right, <clears throat> big church, lots of people, equals awesome, successful church. He goes, rock concert, can't remember any of the message. His family is right there, and they all try to recall collectively what was taught to them. None of them can recall any of what was taught to them. That church, based upon that, completely, you know, non-experiential, I wasn't there. But that church is investing heavily in the entertainment industry. In the music aspect of what they are doing. They're investing very heavily in that. And the people that come in, that's what they're going to experience. Where's the conviction? Where's the challenge? Where's the encouragement? Where's the education? Right? John Corson, years ago, great Calvary Chapel pastor. His son, Ben, is now leading uh, the church in Applegate, Oregon, uh, he he said to us, and it stuck with me, I was a young man, and he said, every time I preach, I, I want to make sure as I do my preparation that I myself am finding in my message the milk, the meat, and the manna. And that stuck with me. Something that you can very easily take in, digest, consume, the meat. Something that you're going to be chewing on for quite a while. That you're going to have to take apart. And then something that could have only come from heaven itself. The milk, the meat, and the manna. And that's always been a challenge to me. To, to look at the sermon and look at what I'm delivering and think about. Is, is the milk, is the meat, is the manna there? And honestly, I've been into a lot of churches and the milk isn't even present. Where there's not even anything there that's just easily taken down from the word of God. You know, I, I will never forget being in a church years ago <clears throat> where the whole sermon was preached from an article from Cosmopol Cosmopolitan magazine. <clears throat> the pastor tried to reach over to the Word of God and make a connection, but didn't even mention the passage, just talked about similarities between Jesus and what they were describing in this article of this young boy who had done some good social things in his community. Really missing the point. You want to make sure you take care of the Levites, God is saying. You want to make sure they are taken care of because they're going to be the center of leading you as a people to worshiping me. And if you're not worshiping me, then you're automatically going to be worshiping something else. And if you worship something else, I'm going to drive you out of this land. You're going, to, you're going to become slaves to other people. We're designed to worship, so you're going to be worshiping something. If you're not worshiping Jesus Christ with all of your heart, soul, and mind, then in this culture, you're probably worshiping possessions or money. That's, that's the next biggest God in our culture. 
success, home, money, wealth, property. If that's not it, then it's probably some form of pleasure. That's usually the next thing. We have gods all around us. And if you aren't dedicated to Jesus Christ, then you will be dedicated to something else. You want to make sure that the Levites are taken care of. Verse 20, when the Lord your God enlarges your borders as he has promised you, and you say, let me eat meat, because you long to eat meat, you may eat as much meat as your heart desires. Now there's a life verse, huh? For all of the carnivores in the room. God is into barbecue, if you haven't noticed. I've mentioned it many times. And it's biblical. You've got to stick to these things. Verse 21, if the place where the Lord your God chooses to put his name is too far from you. And they had some pretty exact standards for what that meant. If you live in the very north of Israel, next to the Lebanese border, and you've got to travel all the way to Jerusalem to bring your sacrifices, which honestly today, you know, is not anywhere near the consideration. But if you have to walk basically the entire length of Rhode Island and back, you know, to go to the festival and then come home, God is giving some leniency here. If, if, if the place where the Lord your God chooses to put his name is too far from you, then you may slaughter your herd and from your flock, which the Lord has given you, just as I have commanded you. You may eat within your gates as much as your heart desires, just as the gazelle and the deer are eaten, so you may eat them. The unclean and the clean alike may eat them. Only be sure that you do not eat the blood, and the blood uh, for the blood is the life. You may not eat the life with the meat. The blood is what he's saying. You shall not eat it. You shall pour it on the earth like water. You shall not eat it, that it may go well with you and your children after you. When you do what is right in the sight of the Lord, only the holy things which you have, your vowed offering, you shall take and go to the place where the Lord chooses, and you shall offer your burnt offerings, the meat offering, or the meat and the and the blood, and on the altar of the Lord your God, the blood of your sacrifices shall be poured out on the altar of the Lord your God. You shall eat meat, observe and obey all these words which I command you, that it may go well with you and your children after you forever. When you go, when you do what is good and right in the sight of the Lord your God. So, for clarification, again, the description that the butchering of their animals, even if they were going to eat at home, previously the Lord had said it needed to happen at the uh, tabernacle. Now they're going to disperse through the land, and if they live a long distance from the tabernacle then they are allowed to the do the butchering at home. But the offerings that they're supposed to bring to the Lord on the mandated feasts, so not all seven of the feasts, but the mandated feasts, they needed to bring them to Jerusalem and bring those offerings there. The importance of this is it's going to gather 
the nation together around the worship of God. Uh, how significant is that? You know, that? That we come together and that we are worshiping the Lord together. I, I had many of you come to me. Um, the government had said, COVID-19, no more church services. We stopped doing that. Um, a few weeks. The biggest regret of my entire ministry, right? I entered ministry at 19 years old. Uh, you know, if, if you were doing anything at 19 years old and you don't have any regrets, I'd, I'd like to have a conversation with you. But anyway, you know, the biggest regret of my entire ministry and all that I've done in all of those years was the fact that during the COVID-19 mandates, we did not have church on Resurrection Sunday that first year. And I, I, I knew it was wrong, and I had a regret in my heart before I did it. And once we had done it and we did not have church, I, I was so beside myself. You can look at it any way you want to, but as a pastor, it grieved me deeply that I had done that. And I made the decision that week that we were reopening the church. The mandate was still in place. We could not meet together. And when we came here, we were completely disobeying the government and the governor of the state, right? But many of you remember, we opened the doors, we came back together. And so many of you came to me. It's only been a few weeks at that point. So many of you came to me and said, I can't believe what has happened in my life in just a few short weeks of being away from this church. And what it means to be back together with the body of Christ. Right? Brace yourself, you guys. They're gearing up for round two right now. They are getting ready to close the churches again. And I'll tell you one more time. When we reopened this church, I said I would never close the doors of this church again. And we're sticking to that. This church will be open for worship. So... You know, the, the significance, the importance of coming together as the body of Christ to see one another's faces. Oh, well, we got Zoom. We got these technologies. We're able to do all this stuff. It is not even remotely close to being the fellowship of the body of Christ. It does not do anything near what coming together does. A lot of people got a lot of things to say about whether that's right or wrong. And I'll just flatly state, they are wrong. I love them, and they can do what they want. That is between them and the Lord, and I take very uh, seriously what Paul said about not judging another man's servant, right? They, they stand before the Lord on their own. That's their business, and they should take that to heart and not judge us. The Lord has called us to be in fellowship. If you choose not to be, then that's your business also. But I, I know what I've heard from the Lord about being together. Here, God is saying, do not forsake this. You live a long ways away. You can't come here and butcher your meat all the time. Go ahead. Butcher at home. That's fine. Have your family meals. Do your preparations. But when it comes to the mandated worship, you must come to Jerusalem. You have to come together as the body of Christ and worship me there. The biggest reason, right, it's twofold. One, 
things develop in my life that shouldn't be there, that you need to look me right in the face and say, hey, what's that doing in your life? And I need to do the same in your life. And then I also have gifts and capabilities that I need to impart into your life. And you have gifts and capabilities that you need to impart into my life. We minister to one another. Being separated from one another, right? We're not a body. The Lord literally describes it as a body, right? Now, if you're thinking, hey, you know, 1135, I always have leniency, if you're not aware of it, on the days that we do communion. We always go late, so get over yourself. So here's the deal. Here's the deal. The body of Christ has to come together. The scripture describes it as a body. And it talks about every member of your body, your fingers, your toes, your eyes, your tongue, all these different things. If someone comes to you and starts trying to take parts of your body off from you, I hope you will fight them with everything that is in your frame, right? We are the body of Jesus Christ. We are the bride of Jesus Christ. Anybody tries to dismember my bride, they're going to walk away missing parts of themselves. I will fight and defend that woman with everything that's in my soul. You are the body of Jesus Christ. You are the bride of Jesus Christ. Don't let anyone dismember you from one another. Someone else sitting right next to you may have a critical ministry in your life that you're not even aware of. Right? Paul talks about right when one member suffers, the whole body suffers. Isn't it amazing how you have one little malady, right? And that problem, right, you, you rounded the corner and you slammed your toe. And, you know, you didn't notice that pinky toe ever before in your life. And now your whole body tells you about it every waking moment of the day. Right? Some unnoticed person in our fellowship in pain needs to be in here communicating to the rest of the body what's going on in their life so that we can all be together and support them, right? Uh, if you're not on the church directory list of communication, email, and text message, and you want to be, let me know. Thank you for praying this week for Pastor Joe D'Amico. By the way, he told me that the Lord has spoken to him clearly that all of the cancer is going to be removed. That's what he's heard from the Lord. So uh, Joe hears clearly from the Lord, and I trust that. Please continue to pray for him and his family. It's going to be a challenging time. We need to come together. You, you, I think you get the understanding and the message of what the Lord is saying here. Got your own home life, your own circumstances. Go take care of that stuff. But come together with the body of Christ and bring the offerings that the Lord has called you to bring into his house of worship. Amen? Make so Good. 29, uh, it's actually part of chapter 30, or th chapter 13, but I'm going to read it anyway. Uh, when the Lord your God cuts off from before you the nations which you go to dispossess, and you displace them and dwell in their land, take heed to yourself that you are not ensnared to follow them. 
after they are destroyed from before you, and that you do not inquire after their gods, saying, How did these nations serve their gods? I also will do likewise. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abomination to the Lord which he hates, they have done to their gods. They or they have burned even their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. Whatever I command you, be careful to observe. You shall not add to it nor take away from it. Because these nations were engaged in this sexual, sensual worship, many unwanted pregnancies were the result, particularly the worship of Molech. And so what they did was as soon as the child was born, they would bring it to the place where Molech was worshipped, and they had a couple different designs to the statue of Molech, this big hulking iron object uh, often had uh, the belly all hollowed out. His head would be reared back, raised toward heaven, curled lips, and the smoke would billow out the top. They would build a huge fire inside the belly, and they would just keep stoking it until the entire thing was incandescent red, and he had outstretched hands in front of him. And while they were all screaming and chanting and pounding on drums, they would take that newborn child and throw it into the open hands of Moloch. It would be burned alive. They would rid themselves of the unwanted children. They engage in all of this sexual practice that's part of their worship and then destroy the unwanted child as an act of worship. Mola, listen, <clears throat> I mentioned the whole sexual revolution of our culture, and we've gotten rid of a lot of the ancient world's hideous forms and gruesome tactics, and we've sterilized things so we don't see them anywhere near out in the open as they used to be. But we worship the same gods of sexuality and sensuality. And unwanted pregnancies are a profound result of that. And to this day, the number one form of abortion, abortion is saline abortion. So heavy saline solution injected straight inside the womb burns the child alive inside the womb, and then it is aborted out. So we just have a more sterile form of the same practice, both in the sensuality and the sexuality and in the disposing of the unwanted children. We're supposed to have children and raise them to honor the Lord. And our culture, and listen, our church culture is, according to Barna Research, actually engaged in abortion at a slightly higher percentage than the unsaved world. As grievous as that sounds, as impossible as it sounds, Barna has done further research, and they think 
that the reason that our abortion rate is slightly higher than the world's is because our sexual promiscuity and our adultery are equal to the world, but our shame because of our faith is slightly higher. So we dispose of the children at a slightly greater percentage than the world itself does. For all of the protests and all of the people standing outside the abortion mills with their signs, the place that these great outrages need to take place is right here inside these halls where the body of Christ is gathered together. We need to be broken hearted. Let's go back to the condition of the heart. The heart that has lust in it that would be compelled to do things that the Lord does not want that we would then try to hide. The honesty needs to begin at home where we have the real relationship with the Lord that changes our thought process. People often say that changes our behavior. Certainly our behavior needs to change. The thing that needs to change is the thought process. The mind needs to be changed. We need to be deeply convicted ourselves. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? That's where we need to begin is in the place of sincerity where our hearts are surrendered to the Lord. Amen? Amen. Well, we'll pick up with chapter 13 next week. Why don't we stand and we'll pray together? Or the Lord will come back this week and we'll just be in his presence and worship him there. That would be good. Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you would help us to be men and women that are truly surrendered to you. Maybe our thought process is not one of lust. Maybe it's just one of selfishness and greed or something else altogether. Help us to be men and women that are truly surrendered to you, that love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, and mind, and, and thereby we love our neighbors as ourselves. Minister to us. Minister through us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.